0: Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Open Floor. I'm Andrew Sharp, and on the other line, Ben Galver. What's up, man?
1: Not too much, Andrew. You know, I've had a little time to do some deep thinking here over the last week. Like I mentioned, I'm digging into the meditation, and it's really, you know, opening up new avenues of thought for me,
0: sure. and I
1: came to a conclusion, you know, I always thought we were running kind of a basketball podcast where it's just two guys and maybe they're a little bit opposites and they're gonna, you know, dish some takes about basketball. But I started to think that maybe you're actually running a very long con, like perpetrating a fraud upon me. And I just never (laughs) knew this because last week, for example, you know, you're asking me, to post all of the jerseys that we had talked about on that episode onto Instagram because there's never such thing as as too much you know Instagram content. So I dutifully did that. I got dozens of responses from the amazing open floor globe listeners, and I'm sitting around waiting and waiting and waiting for you to do the same thing to kind of chip <laughs> in and and pull your own weight. Not only do I not get a reply from you, I certainly didn't get any of the pictures of your jerseys, and it started to get me thinking, you know, huh, maybe this is a little bit of a one-sided relationship. I've opened up about my crazy family members, I've told you all about my weird hobbies with Legos, and I've gone deep into World War II, and as far as I could tell, You pretty much just nervously laugh over there, let me hang myself, you give me the rope, let me hang myself, and then you just sign off and and call it another good podcast. That's why I feel like you're kind of uh, perpetrating a fraud here, and I want to know, how do you answer for yourself? Where have you been?
0: Yeah perpetrating a fraud on you and the listeners and everyone. Um, no, that's an accurate assessment, okay? I'm more reluctant to share my personal life than you are. number one. Number two, I, nervous laughter on my end is a trademark of the podcast as you kind of derail things. young Westbrook over there. Number three though, I'm glad that you have I'm glad that you mentioned the jerseys. Because I did not remember requesting you to post those jerseys on Instagram. And uh, it, so I woke up one day and saw you posted like 15 photos of jerseys on your Instagram stories and was like, what the hell is Ben doing? But now it makes a lot more sense. I completely forgot that I had mentioned that on the podcast. That is a
1: classic element of your fraud. It's not listening to me. It's just letting (laughs) me talk for 20 minutes and not actually processing the words that come out of my mouth. I really appreciate that. You think I'm over here just having a garage sale on Instagram when in fact I'm fulfilling (laughs) a mandate from my podcast partner. Come on, man.
0: Yeah, that is true. My eyes glazing over and tuning out while you sort of go on a five-minute monologue is another trademark of the podcast um here's my one thought on your jersey collection i have to say my jerseys are much better than yours and at some point i will get around to posting them i you just gotta buy them first right (laughs) yeah look give me yeah I, i let you sort of lead things off but sometime in september i will take people on a tour of my jersey collection which i spent a lot of time and money on through my college years and uh, i'm pretty proud of it it's definitely one of the one of the better accomplishments i've i've been able to come up with in my 30 years on this planet
1: well, that's another sign, you know. Lots of tough talk, no action. You know, I'm definitely used to that. <laughs> yeah, I'll probably well. never look, post
0: it. Let's be real. Yeah, you,
1: you, well, we'll all be waiting anxiously with bated breath for you to post it. But <laughs> hey, look, we've got dozens of questions, and and here's the thing, Andrew. This is pretty much a mailbag pod. You know, we are in the summer, so uh, you know we're we're trying to cover as much ground as we can uh, with help yeah. from the listeners. But look, I want revelatory answers here, okay? Every time you're going to dish an answer, I want you to think and, and and give us some nuggets about Andrew Sharp, the person, the man, the myth, the legend, because I'm sure I'm not the only person who's out there yearning for more.
0: There we go. I'll do my best, okay, for you, for the listeners, for, for this podcast. Um, but you're right. We do have a lot to get through. And we will begin with Carmelo Anthony, okay? So Joseph says, everyone has been writing off Carmelo. They say he's a terrible player who can't adapt, he can't play defense, and he's an inefficient scorer at best. However, it was only just a little over a year ago when everyone was up in arms saying Victor Oladipo was a terrible return for Paul George. We know what happened next. Do you think we could see a similar effect for Carmelo leaving Westbrook and playing next to his good friend and point god, CP3, along with a much better and more natural facilitator in MVP, James Harden? So, Ben, we have had every opportunity to discuss Carmelo on the Rockets this summer because everyone knew things were headed this way. We got a a couple questions each week asking us what we thought about Carmelo's fit in Houston. And each week, we just haven't quite gotten around to it. It's almost always on the rundown, and we usually skip over it for one reason or another. There was also one podcast a couple weeks ago where we deleted an angry 5-10 to minute digression I had yelling at Mellow Critics. Uh, That's a, a longer story, but... Now that we are in the depths of August and the news is official, we can do it. Let's talk about Carmelo and the state of Carmelo. Carmelo's fit in Houston. We can take this in any direction you want.
1: Well, I think, you know, to answer Joseph's idea, I think for Carmelo Anthony to become the next Victor Oladipo, I think it's going to take two factors, okay? One, a time machine. Two, a tummy tuck. I think (laughs) if he starts there, then he could get back on that career revitalization track. Look, I understand people saying there's a Westbrook effect, but I don't think the criticism of Carmelo Anthony as a guy who doesn't play defense, doesn't really adapt, and is an inefficient scorer at best started yeah. last season in Oklahoma City. Look, those storylines were already there for years uh, during his New York tenure, and I think he even had his share of critics back in the Denver days too. Uh, you know, even when he was you know a much better player. Uh, and a much more impactful player uh, than he is right now. I think for me, you know, Houston is in a position where it's not an Oklahoma City calculation where like Oklahoma City was tied to Carmelo, right? They had him on the big contract number. They were really trying to kind of pitch this big three to kind of, you know, keep the franchise like in this discussion as a destination and, and to try to make Sam Presti's gambles pay off. Like, they needed Melo a lot. When I look at Houston, they don't really need Carmelo. Uh, he doesn't do right. what Trevor Rizzo or Mute did. He's not earning the huge salary. And I don't think they're going to be in a position where they're just going to be strong-armed into starting him, into having him close games next season. I think the leverage calculation and balance has changed a little bit. And I think expectations should plummet for what he's going to give them. And that could be a situation where he actually does wind up Maybe over delivering on what the critics expect, but uh, mm-hmm. you know, to me, Melo is is not a positive player anymore. Uh, you know, he's he's a net minus when he's on the court. I don't see him being able to really uh, play effective minutes against Golden State in a playoff series. But I do think, at the minimum, you do it. I mean, why not? Uh, I do not he's... Is,
0: is the operative sort of rationale here. It's like, you know, they don't have any other alternatives. So see what you can get from Carmelo, at least through the regular season and early in the playoffs. I mean, it's really easy to look at Houston circling Golden State and say that Melo doesn't really change much once they get to the conference finals, if they get that far. But uh, I like a lot of what you said, though, because I think that's a much smarter way to look at what's possible for Carmelo and and to say that this could actually end up working out well for him. And it wouldn't necessarily be because Russell Westbrook holds everyone back. I, I think that's kind of like an easier way to explain it. Um, and But I also would say that there's some element of that that's true. I mean, Melo was not really in the best situation for him like throughout his career he's best when he's forced to to play in a context where everybody's moving the ball and uh and you're you're, like everybody gets a touch and okc was not that team last year and really a lot of mellow teams haven't been that that situation in large part because of mellow but uh when you people talk about Olympic mellow like that's why it works is because the ball is kind of zipping all over the place and some of that is possible in Houston although they're pretty ISO heavy themselves so I like I guess all of this is a little bit half-hearted because the idea that Carmelo is really going to change much at all is probably overblown
1: I think it's really telling though Andrew that last summer when he got traded to Oklahoma City I had to like resurface from the forest and the rock gardens of Utah to like have an emergency podcast. And this year it's like, Oh, cool. Well, he finally signed. Great. You know, it, it happened. It's yeah. it, not really that big of a deal. Like his stock has definitely tumbled. Uh, and that's what I was getting at with the expectations point. I think that, you know, Dr. Carmelo, the guy who's trying to diagnose why the Oklahoma city situation uh, you know, didn't work should be, you know, essentially, you know, the medical version of disbarred, right? Like he should have his license taken away because (laughs) in his view, he didn't have the ball enough. You know, they didn't use him right. He was too much of a complimentary piece. And and that's why he thought it didn't work. In my view, he still took way too many tough twos. He didn't commit to having uh, the right kind of shot selection. He wasn't athletic or physical enough to play the defensive positions that they needed him to play. And he was just a very, very easy guy to pick on in the playoffs. And that had nothing to do with Russell Westbrook. Now, did Westbrook set him up perfectly all the time? No. Uh, Was the balance between their big three guys in Oklahoma City right? No, it was not. Everyone would agree on those things. But, you know, there were other more glaring issues. And I think in Houston, you know, it does help. Uh, that they're going to just play a spread style all the time, and he's going to be largely a catch-and-shoot three-point shooter. I think that's going to be the most effective way to use him right now, and hopefully right. he buys in. Andrew, you'll remember my you know very cutting dig about Carmelo a year or two ago when I said he's been a bystander. <laughs> To his own reality, I think the Rockets are the opportunity for him to finally like jump back into what's really happening, to kind of be shaken awake and and reboard a little bit and realize look, you're not the guy you were six years ago. That ship has sailed. Like no matter how stubborn you are, no matter how defiant you are with the, you know, the silly picture of the wine in the street and you know, telling all of his critics to, you know, do unholy acts to him. Um, you know, I think that guy needs to take a backseat to the guy who's saying, look, if you make the finals in Houston, all of the critics who have been on you for the last 10 years will have to rewrite those stories. If you can work yourself in as a quality fourth or fifth option on offense, you can change these stories about guys who, who say you're selfish and you were only in it for the money and you can get some redemption for sort of the disappointment of that New York era. All of that's on the table for Carmelo Anthony. Let's see. If those uh, you know opportunities are enough to motivate him in the right direction,
0: okay. So, but you don't think any of that's actually going to happen, though. Like we could no, be real. Of, about of course this, right? not. Okay. Obviously not. Come on. <laughs> like it's it's on the table, but it's at the far end of the table. Like he's going to have to stretch all the way and maybe get it. But I, let's be honest here about what's really possible for Carmelo and even the Rockets in general. I don't blame them for making this move, but. I don't really think that Carmelo gets them that much closer, uh, but I'll I will be rooting for Mello, and in general, I do have some thoughts about Mello. Again, we we got into it a couple weeks ago, but had to delete part of it just because the podcast was going to be an hour and forty minutes, and uh, I refuse to release a podcast that long. Andrew, Just...
1: stop right there. I'm going what? to cue you up. It is the Andrew Sharp reports segment of the of the podcast. <laughs> oh now, God. Here we you've go. already referenced it twice, okay? And it is the lost tapes. It's sort of like when Tupac died, well, quote unquote died. We know he's out there in the island somewhere, but <laughs> they started releasing all these albums of his, you know, uh, remastered songs. We're going to do that right here, right now, because you're really angry about critics who don't expect very much of Carmelo and who are maybe too down on him right now. So Andrew Sharp is going to report why Carmelo Anthony is vastly (laughs) (laughs) underrated and a future Hall of Famer. Let's hear it.
0: Look, all right. No, I don't just lower your expectations okay my takes are not that hot on this one i just and and part of it is because mellow now all the criticism is completely justified i just feel like we've gone a little bit overboard in some respects and so let me preface this by saying that i recognize my loyalty at this point is borderline unreasonable but i really don't care because here's my thing Like, Melo in general, when we talk about his career, he's never been quite as good as the hype suggests, but he's also not as bad or as overrated as his critics have said. And over the past few years, the basketball internet criticism has gotten so loud that the pendulum has just swung way too far, where there are a bunch of, like, 23 and 24-year-old NBA writers who will just be out there on Twitter saying, like, Mello is trash. Mello is garbage. Get this dude out of the league. And it just drives me fucking crazy because Mello is not trash. And if you can't appreciate Carmelo's game, like, at its best, like the platonic ideal of Carmelo, you either started watching the NBA four years ago or you're just watching basketball for the wrong reasons. Like, I am a lifelong Mello loyalist For better or worse and so I do kind of do a double take when I see all these people just trashing him I mean he because he's he's one of the best scorers of like the last 20 years and uh and I think people should remember that when they talk about him
1: all right now we're getting somewhere Andrew Sharp reports so follow-up question for all these little baby 22, 23, 24-year-old know-it-alls who are walking on your lawn and they're not is picking really, up their trash after you. I'm on you your
0: corner right now. I'm live from the rocking chair defending like 2007 Carmelo Anthony.
1: Who are playing their music too loudly, who are just <laughs> aggravating all of their neighbors. Andrew, I want you to tell them what was it about Carmelo Anthony that inspired such positive feelings in you? What was he able to do when he was at his best uh, to keep guys like you hooked through a five-year decline? Because let's be honest, he's been declining for five years (laughs) now, right? And and you're still still defending him. So walk me through the experience, like that pure ceiling-level experience of Carmelo Anthony at his best.
0: Okay, so um, it's hard to say. it, it, It just... He was just such a pure scorer. And when he was feeling it, like when he would have nights where it was clear in the first quarter that nobody could guard him and his game was just gorgeous. Like the the little step backs from the mid range. I mean, he was kind of chubby for most of his career, which is another reason I loved him, but he had a, a lightning quick first step and he would just barrel around people and get straight to the rim. And then there was also sort of a there were elements of the Olympic mellow game that would show up in the NBA every now and then where he'd hit like gorgeous pull-up threes in transition and he was just the best. And I like I should be very clear, again, most of my loyalty began with his time at Syracuse and that one year he had. And I don't totally blame some of the younger people who think that Mello is garbage. <laughs> because they just never experienced that Syracuse mellow, and so I get it. Uh, but I again, like the anti-mellow stuff has just gone a little too far. I think, he, he, in general, his story is more interesting than a player who's been overrated his entire career, because I think one of the things that has affected the way people view him is he came in seen as a peer to LeBron, and he's just not LeBron. He's never really been close, but like LeBron is is right there with Jordan, and no one else is close to those two. So it's like Melo's game isn't perfect, but he's also not far off from someone who's kind of worshipped like Dirk Nowitzki or maybe even like a Kyrie Irving where there are clear holes in his game. But in the right situation, he can kind of raise the ceiling for everybody. And I think what's interesting about Melo is is when you look at the differences between Melo and someone like Dirk is like, or even Kyrie. Like Kyrie has been really lucky with the way his career has gone over the last four or five years. And then a, a Dirk Nowitzki, like he was willing to make sacrifices along the way that Carmelo never could. And I think that's what separates him from some of from someone like Dirk. Um, and that's also really interesting is the Melo had Hall of Fame talent and was kind of his own worst enemy for in like a dozen different situations over the last 15 years.
1: Yeah, that's well said. The LeBron comparisons, very interesting because, I mean, who would ever want to be in that situation? Same draft cast as LeBron, you know, talked about like, you know, one versus two, obviously he didn't go two, but Um, I mean, that was sort of the debate leading into that year. Who would you rather have? Melo's coming off the college year. LeBron's coming straight out of high school. Uh, I give Mello credit for this. It would have been very easy to adopt the Brady Bunch uh, mentality of Marsha did it again. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. LeBron (laughs) did it again. LeBron, LeBron, LeBron. And Melo didn't really do that. I mean, he was part of the banana boat. Obviously, he's not like... uh, you know, the lead singer at the banana boat. I mean, he's just one of the guys, but for the most part, he kind of ran in his own lane. He had a very clear identity. I, I kind of look at him as sort of the stylistic, heir apparent to like Alan Iverson uh, yeah. in some ways, where there's a countercultural element to it uh, that was pushing back on, you know, mainstream stuff. Uh, you know, you, you have that level of like Slam Magazine reader, just super diehard. Like every, all those good feelings people had for AI just sort of got transferred onto Carmelo Anthony. And he, was always in LeBron's shadow on the court. But I feel like off the court, he sort of did his own dig. He was really early as a, you know, pioneer in the luxury watch game, (laughs) you know? Like he had these little like (laughs) strange interests where, I mean, now we look back and we could say like in terms of a guy who sort of helped create this sort of like branded, you know, 24-7 news cycle, NBA, like what are these guys up to phenomenon? Mello is absolutely a major part of that. And he probably doesn't get enough credit for that um
0: but yeah well and that's part of what i enjoy about mellow because he did he got very into luxury watches for a while there there was a post back at grantland i did early on where it was just a picture of carmelo in like 30 different kind of luxury hats i don't even know it's like the type of hats you would wear to the kentucky derby like the various various top hats uh and Mello was deep in no, the I mean, hat game like, for a while there. He had
1: crocodile hunter hats. I mean, he had everything. <laughs>
0: exactly. So just, I think as a character, he's been great to have on the landscape. And I think the weaknesses that he has are really interesting. And again, Mello at his best was just fucking awesome to watch. Um, so I will always root for him. And I... Am annoyed at how quickly he is dismissed, even though those people are definitely correct. Uh, and yeah, I hope <laughs> like I don't have high hopes for the Mello in Houston tenure. But uh, again, let's not l- use these last couple years to just kind of like dismiss or undermine the first ten or fifteen years of, of Carmelo's career.
1: Well, one thing I know for sure is that you made up these whole 22, 23, 24-year-old writers you were referencing earlier because you were just trying to take a shot at me because everything that you <laughs> said is. they thought is pretty much what I've said about Carmelo, well, but I will I will admit though, this, Andrew.
0: There's okay. nothing meaner I can say to you than comparing you to like a 22-year-old millennial. So that's I'm trying to cut as deep as I possibly can here.
1: Yeah, I, I understand that. I will say Carmelo <laughs> at his best- was a guilty pleasure of mine he's not a guy who I wanted to watch on a night-to-night basis you know if he was on quote-unquote my team or if I was like on the beat covering his team from a basketball encore perspective he would have driven me insane within about 20 games but Carmelo at his best and, and you did a very nice job of kind of encapsulating the feeling about that was sensational i mean he's running 70 points off and you know when he's doing it it feels like he might get 120 you know it's like he's just not gonna miss for you know a quarter and a half straight uh he can beat you in so many different ways and i think he's also one of those guys and we mentioned sort of like the next generation of these guys in devin booker where players definitely love mellow like they definitely overrate mellow in terms of where his game is at because
0: yeah yeah People react to the players talking about Melo as if he's a top five player in the league and like a perennial MVP candidate, which I think is how a lot of people talked about him at his peak. And he was never that good. Even I can admit that. And I, I also second what you said. If Carmelo had been on the Wizards for like through the late uh, the, the late part of the last decade, like I, I'm sure he would have driven me insane. So I, I agree with that as well.
1: He would have been a perfect wizard. My last mellow thought is this: we mentioned the LeBron mellow, you know, Marsha, 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 uh, you know, sentiment that that really didn't ever develop. I think it's so funny that the player who stood in the in between LeBron and the first ever unanimous MVP award was Carmelo Anthony getting one vote uh, that year. <laughs> LeBron was in Miami, and then ultimately Steph Curry becomes the first ever unanimous MVP. You know that deep down in LeBron's competitive you know, uh, vortexes of his mind, he's thinking, I could have done something that Mike never did, and now Steph did it, and here's my buddy Carmelo, who I'm definitely better than, definitely had a better season than, and he's the guy who robbed me of the first-ever unanimous MVP. To me, that's just hilarious. And that Whoa. might actually be Melo's <laughs> defining legacy.
0: <laughs> and that was another sort of transformative moment for the way we cover and experience the NBA today because Melo getting that vote pissed so many people off it turned into like an (laughs) internet-wide shaming of Gary Washburn I still remember who voted for him uh, from the Boston Globe people were so upset about that that like I think NBA awards voting is more defined by groupthink today and kind of fear of that internet wide shaming than it ever was uh, back when like Jordan was playing and even the the Shaq years and Steve Nash. Like now, if a guy has a season as good as LeBron's or as good as Steph Curry, everybody is going to vote for him because nobody wants to be the guy that voted for Carmelo. (laughs) And so, yet another contribution from Carbello to the the modern NBA landscape.
1: Yeah, you know what that reminded me of is like, you know, when the Green Party like accidentally swings an election because like their 1% candidate is like enough to like screw up the Democrats versus the Republicans and like everyone gets so mad at the Green Party. It's like, God, stay out of these elections. You're like throwing it to the Republicans. Gary Washburn was like the living embodiment of the Green Party <laughs> totally. and everyone was able <laughs> to channel their national rage towards him. Uh, I mean, kudos to him for standing up through it. I don't think he ever backed down off his pick. I mean, he had his reasons. I didn't agree with him, but he stood up for it, right?
0: I respected it because, again, I always have had a soft spot for Melo. And also, it's like, who gives a shit? LeBron's going to win. It doesn't matter. Unanimous is not—it doesn't really change things that much. And if anything, we saw with Steph, it made people more resentful of Steph. So um, I don't think anybody needs to be a unanimous winner. But— Moving along here, uh, because we went too long on Carmelo, which again, I'm not sure anybody really cares about Carmelo at this point. But moving to another team in the West uh, and a column that you wrote this week. Justin says, Dear Ben and Andrew, reading Golliver's Wins Totals Best Bets column of August 13th on Sports Illustrated, I was left wondering why Memphis at 34 and a half was not a best bet for the over. The Grizzlies won 43 games in 2016 and 2017. They now have uh, Marcus Saul and Mike Conley healthy. They've also gotten the addition of a solid pro in Kyle Anderson and a lottery pick in Jaron Jackson Jr., who can already play defense, is a willing passer, and will hit spot up threes. Even if you take into account a more contentious Western Conference, 34 and a half seems like a very conservative number. What do you think about the Grizz? Because I actually, I read this and I agreed with him and I was mad at myself for not putting them in my own best bets tweet. <laughs> I didn't write a column on it, but I do think that Memphis at 34 is low. I, I think that they are going to be pretty solid and, and they're going to be in the mix with that like second half of the West playoff field.
1: Yeah, you were mad at yourself because you forgot they were in the NBA, weren't you?
0: <laughs> yeah, which, you know, look, I mean, the Grizzlies are easy to forget. Let's be honest about that. But sure. Let,
1: let's be very honest about that. Well, I think, you know, the premise of his question is they've got Mike Conley and, and Marcus Saul healthy right now. Now, does that yeah. mean they're going to be staying healthy for the entire season? That's what the entire, uh, I think, wager is going to come down on. You know, to me, I think Mike Conley's missed something like twelve plus games in four straight seasons. Uh, that makes me nervous. Um, we saw down the stretch. I mean, that was really one of the underrated, pathetic rosters of all time last year. You know, I mean, it was Mark Gasol and just like the most just forgettable cast-off lineups that they were throwing together. Um, you know, I think you you throw that together uh, together with the idea that you know Jaron Jackson Jr. I like him a lot. I think he's going to be a very special player, but you always worry about young bigs in terms of whether they can make a positive impact uh, yeah. in year 1. So there's a little skepticism there. Um and then I only made 5 bets. So to answer his question, I mean, I just didn't view them as one as one of my top 5s mostly because of some of the health concerns around, you know, Conley and Gasol. If either one of those guys goes down, you know, their whole season falls apart. But the Kyle Anderson thing is is actually interesting that he mentioned him because I was having a conversation with uh, about Kyle Anderson yesterday, and I, I started off by being like, "Yeah, you know, he probably makes like two thirds of what Chandler Parsons makes, uh, but he's going to give you know, like five times the value because Parsons has been injured forever." Sure. It turns out he's going to make. One third of what Chandler Parsons makes, and he's probably going to be their full-time starter, and you know, arguably, what like their third or fourth most important player. Uh, That is crazy. So I understand, like, uh, you know, by this summer's market dynamics, it seemed a little bit weird how much he got paid. But when you compare him to like what Parsons got two summers ago, and like their projected contributions this year, I think that signing looks pretty darn good for Memphis. I think he's Mm -hmm. going to be very helpful, and you know, they just needed you know, solid or or plus, you know, NBA level players at this point, because their roster has been in such bad shape. But I'm worried about their culture, uh, not only because of the Gasol and the, you know, the the coaching stuff from last year, but their owner, uh, their GM doesn't exactly inspire a lot of confidence with his moves. So I just, to me, I would stay away. Uh, I understand his logic, but I, I just be nervous that something would go wrong, because I don't trust really any aspect of their organization.
0: Well, yeah, I understand that. Um, and you mentioned Parsons. I, that's another thing I thought about is it says a lot about where Chandler Parsons is at this point that he didn't even make this email from Justin as, as Justin is clearly kind of grasping at straws as he's trying to toss out Kyle Anderson, Jaron Jackson Jr. who Jaron Jackson Jr. could be really good in three years. I don't think he's going to help them that much next year. Uh, could be wrong there. Um, And Chris Wallace, man, like that's another one where if more people cared about the Grizzlies, I think there would be more shock and awe that Chris Wallace is still in charge down there after all these years, uh, because he hasn't really shown that much. Um, But what I would say is that for me, the case does come down to Gasol and Conley, and I don't think that they're going to miss... As like nearly as much time as they did last year. I mean, Conley missed basically the entire season, and uh, and I think if you get those guys for seventy to seventy-five games, like the Grizzlies are going to clear that thirty-four and a half number. The Kyle Anderson signing though does hit on one thing that is just incredible to me. I mean, we've been talking about this Grizzlies team for the last ten years, and every single year they have needed shooting. And they just never bring in anybody who can hit from the outside. And I guess that was kind of the thinking with bringing in Chandler Parsons. But there are a couple teams in sports that are like this. Like the the parallel I would draw are the uh, Chicago Bears. When I was growing up, they had great defenses every year. Brian Erlacher was there, and like they just could never find a quarterback, no matter what they did. And they felt like like they lucked into a super bowl with rex grossman one year but like it was just always a disaster and that's kind of how it is with the grizzlies on the wing like i don't understand how it's possible that they've gone this long without finding a shooter but like kyle anderson continues that streak because he's a really good player but he doesn't really help their like most glaring hole
1: Yeah, well, with the Parsons thing, you have this life cycle of a bad contract where when you sign it, you're hopeful, you're trying to talk yourself into it. After the first year completes, you're just absolutely enraged. You're counting down the days until it's done. You're furious. You're (laughs) praying that you can trade it after two years, you start to get resigned and you're just sad and you hope that no one brings it up. And like, after three years, you get into the stage where it's sort of like a blight. Like, I don't know if you've ever had this where like, you go visit someone and like, maybe down the street, there's like an abandoned building and you're like, Oh, Hey, like what's up with that abandoned building? And the person who, who you're visiting is like, Oh, I didn't even realize that was there. It's like, it's been there so long. It's just sort of part of what they expect. Like Chandler Parsons is the, you know, his contract is the abandoned building uh, in this metaphor. I mean, similar to like Evan Turner, or whatever else where it's been there for so long, everyone's just trying to pretend that it doesn't exist. And they just like gloss uh, over it when they look at the books. And it's like, oh, yeah, you know, that 20 plus million, it's sitting there. Uh, we, we're not going to be able to move it. We've given up all hope. It's just, it is what it is.
0: Can I push back on that one? Because I am currently living that life cycle with Jan Mahinmi in Washington, DC. And <laughs> okay. I, I have to say that that's not exactly how it works. Okay. There's that first year where there's just kind of, Horror as you realize what's happened and realize that there's no turning back. The deal is signed, it's guaranteed that, that that's just how it works in the NBA. Unfortunately, this isn't the NFL. You can't just cut bait after two months. And so you kind of just come to grips with everything and, and there's an acceptance process. And then the second and third years are when it gets really dark, or really the second year. Like last year, Watching Jan Mahinmi out there was just infuriating, and it's funny because I think we talked about the Blazers on the last podcast. And after we finished, I was I was imagining being a Blazers fan and having to watch Evan Turner every night because he plays more than Mahinmi does. And so Mahinmi, I could kind of keep him out of sight and out of mind through most of the Wizard season. But Evan Turner is is like a fixture for the Blazers, and it would just be oh, really a- hard.
1: <laughs> He's a constant reminder of your bad decisions. You know exactly. It's like looking in the mirror and like you're, you know your like bloodshot eyes. It's reminding you of your, your, your tough night from the previous night, but for four years straight.
0: It's really tough. but I will say that you begin to turn a corner, okay? Once the end of the contract is in sight, it really it, the, the, the deal transforms. And now, like, headed into this year with Yama Henmi, Still not going to play very much, still making an obscene amount of money. But he, his contract becomes stretchable after this year. There's only one year left <laughs> I after knew, this one. I <laughs> knew that
1: was coming. <laughs> there
0: is light at the end of the tunnel. So all I'm saying is that every now and then those bad deals become reason for hope. And so maybe that's happening in Memphis where they look at Chandler Parsons and say, hey, this, this happened. There's no taking any of this back, but it's going to be over soon. So at least we got that going for us.
1: Okay, I I absolutely hear what you're saying, but I think here's what you need to do to put yourself in the mindset of a Memphis Grizzlies fan, because, you know, granted, we don't hear from them very often. Imagine Jan Mahinmi just never played because he couldn't play it. Now, imagine he was earning double what he's earning now. (laughs) That's true. Now, imagine he makes the news for hanging out with models on a, you know, at least once a month basis. And then imagine he's sitting on the bench, like eating hamburgers and French fries and goofing <laughs> off at games. Okay, would you still have the same life cycle if that was the experience you were dealing with, uh, I, or I would you be say. like, would <laughs> yeah. you be picketing out front of the arena?
0: I don't know. The Grizzlies fans have been through a lot, man. I will say that like Grizzlies games themselves. Have you ever been down to Memphis?
1: I have not, uh, they, but I look forward to going.
0: Yeah, the atmosphere is great. I I have I had a really good experience going to Grizzlies games, and uh, I was there for like a week a couple years ago, and uh, I really liked Memphis. So I think they're having fun regardless, but you're right that Parsons is kind of more aggressively incompetent than even Jan Mahinme. So uh, I don't know. Good luck with that, Memphis. The, the deal is almost over, and I'm happy for Parsons that he got paid. Um The way I would
1: manage it, by the way, if I was a Grizzlies fan, is I would just pretend Parsons doesn't exist. You know, it's sort of like that next play mentality. There's nothing you can do about it. Move on. And I would be focusing my entire life on building a like Jaron Jackson Jr. shrine blog and just be that guy (laughs) because he has that potential. And if you're the Jaron Jackson Jr. guy, you know, ride that wave, see where it goes. You know, it could wind up with, you know, lots of all-star appearances and, and all defensive team selections.
0: Well, yeah, that's my, that's what I'm saying is pretending that Jan Mahinmy and Chandler Parsons don't exist. That's the only strategy. Okay. That's the only option we have. And that's why I really do feel worst for the Blazers fans because, you know, you can't pretend that Evan Turner isn't out there playing 30 to 35 minutes every game. And so that, that makes it harder. Um, But yeah,
1: well, look, I mean, speaking on behalf of Portland, you know, you know take your feelings of sorrow and shove it okay because you're over there you don't have a jaron jackson jr okay your 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 shrine blog is going to be the austin river shrine blog you've already done a shrine to dwight howard this summer everybody had to read it, it was 17 <laughs> steps worth okay so like i th- i know you're trying to make the blazers fans seem like the most pitied bunch in the world but andrew that is you projecting okay the wizards still hold That top spot.
0: I am ready. I I can't wait for the season to start. I, honest to God, have talked myself into this team entirely. And uh, it's going to be fun. Um, But moving on to our next question here, which is from Cody, who says, I am not an Andrew Wiggins stan, and I want him off my favorite team. Having said that, why does Wiggins get all kinds of shade thrown his way while Devin Booker commands respect from fellow players and nobody in the media blinked twice at Devin Booker getting the exact same deal as Andrew Wiggins. They are both one-and-done lottery picks from premier college programs. Their first three years in the league are very similar from both a traditional and advanced stats perspective. They are both defensive liabilities and low-efficiency, high-volume scorers that played on bad teams. Wiggins only missed one game compared to Booker's 38. I guess that's through the first couple years. Um, I think that's complicated. What, do you have any reactions there?
1: Yeah, a couple of thoughts. First of all, Cody, I mean, I, I hear your general premise. You know, I, when I wrote up my analysis of the Devin Booker extension, you know, I, you said nobody blinked twice. I mean, I definitely think I blinked twice. And I said that the deal told us more about Phoenix and sort of their level of desperation than it actually did about Booker's Uh, you know, proven, you know, demonstrated skill set, we know he can score. But I think there'd be other situations where if he was in a more healthy environment with an organization that had other building blocks already in place, or maybe some veteran stars on the books, he's not going to be an automatic, you know, five year max guy, you know, coming off of his rookie deal. They just had no leverage, they had to give it to him. In terms of why there's a different perception of Wiggins and Booker, for me personally, I think it comes down to the fact that Booker seems to love basketball. He's a hooper, he's from a family of hoopers, and that is the big question about Wiggins. Does he love the game? Does he want to be uh, the best player that he can possibly be? Is he completely invested in developing and filling out his game and working on his game uh, and being locked in at, you know, all moments? And I think I mean you can see it translating on the court. You know, he floats at times, he's not as impactful at other times. Yeah, he's you know struggles to uh, contribute when he doesn't have the ball at his hands. It's kind of a weird fit when he's not sort of like the alpha role or, or the number two guy. Um, you know, I think that those are you know pretty serious knocks on a player. And I also think he just faces you know the burden of being the number one pick. I mean, that comes with its own level of pressure. Lots of guys you know throughout history can attest to that. Why do we still talk about Kwame Brown or, or Ola Candy, right? Like these guys mm-hmm. uh, get mentioned because of that level of pressure. Uh, you know, Greg Oden's the huge bust because he's the number one pick. You know, if those guys had the same career at number 10 uh, or number six, you know, we're not talking about them. Anthony Bennett will go down in the history books for the same reason. And I think, you know, that really does shape expectations and a conversation around a player and Wiggins is dealing with it. And unfortunately, he just really hasn't risen to the challenge of that. Um, and I think, you know, f- fellow players, you know, those guys they can, can... sense it, yeah. They can sense it, and they can ju- they make snap judgments on guys. Does this guy really care? Is he locked in? Is he trying to get himself better? Does he live in the gym? And I think they just have those questions about Wiggins.
0: Yeah, I, I agree with most of what you said. And what I would add is that what's most fascinating to me about Devin Booker is that I I think that sort of like grading guard prospects and perimeter players and how they're going to develop involves accounting for some intangible qualities that we don't really use or and, and don't really matter in big men as much. But I do think that like to be a superstar on the wing, you need like physically you need a little bit of shake to your game where you can kind of create space out of thin air and score in tight windows and, and kind of do whatever you want. And, and for all the things you could say about Devin Booker and what he hasn't done thus far, like he very much has that. And he could also run the pick and roll, which is valuable. And that's something that Wiggins can't really do. Um, and so I think he's got that going for him in terms of projecting him as like a franchise guy and the other thing is, is that you need kind of like a killer mindset. And this might be sort of treading into like mellow is a top five guy territory and something that players use, which is kind of stupid. But I do think you need a specific kind of mindset that, that separates you from like ordinary good two guards. And I, I think it's the difference between someone like, um, I don't know, uh, I, it's the difference between someone like Kyrie and someone like Bradley Beal, and and I, I know on the uh, in in the past on this podcast I have stand out for Bradley Beal and said that he is every bit as good as Kyrie Irving, but I think that's well, true. now you're a Celtics fan, no. so you know it's understandable. <laughs> no, no, no. I th- but it, when you look at Beal, he has every tool you would want physically, but there are just. Too many times where he leaves you kind of wanting a little bit more. There are plays that he doesn't finish. There are, uh, like, he just can't quite take over the way you would kind of hope he he would. And, uh, and I think it's going to ultimately be the difference between Beal being a superstar and being an all-star for the next 10 years, which is like, it's a perfectly fine career trajectory and bradley beal is awesome i love beal um this isn't a criticism of him but i do think that if you're looking at the like upper echelon of guys there is an intangible quality there that devin booker does seem to have and we could be wrong and this could like we could regret a lot of the hype surrounding him um but it's just something that that to me makes guards more interesting because it's harder to project because like D'Angelo Russell was another guy who seemed to have that intangible quality and then and his game has just been a mess for the last three years so you never really know
1: yeah I think you're onto something with the ability to create a shot I mean I do think that's you know um, a big thing that you know fellow players value and that you know certain kinds of commentators will value as well Booker definitely has that he's much more comfortable on the ball wiggins it's much more of a sledgehammer approach you know downhill trying to get to the free throw line yeah. um and I, I think there's just a clear preference for the booker style versus the wiggins style i also think uh one other thing to mention i mean the kentucky mafia in the nba is different than the kansas mafia right i mean like the kansas mafia like there's a lot of nba players nba players who went to kansas and i think cody mentioned you know their premier college programs like that's true But I think the Kentucky allure, I mean, the number of all-stars, the Coach Calipari effect, uh, I think, you know, those guys are just on a different level of kind of cachet um, than anyone really maybe besides, what, Duke and and North Carolina. I mean, I think those are kind of the the three biggest programs, right, in the NBA. Uh, And I think that, that makes a difference too here, right? Like, Wiggins doesn't have, like, a big blue nation of apologists like ready to cape for him at like a moment's notice whereas Booker definitely does
0: I you know what when you talk about Kansas I am still amazed that they avoided any kind of scrutiny in the Adidas scandal because I'm pretty sure Kansas is an Adidas school and I know like every year they they win Sketchy recruiting battles in like March and April, and somehow they just skated through all of the Adidas uproar over the last 12 months. Which is, I'm glad they're paying players, it's good for them. But, um, that's that's my only thought on Kansas, and they've also you, like Kansas is a premier college program, but they've had like more than their share of busts in the lottery over the last 10 or 15 years as well. I would not, okay, play so for, first of all, for Bill Self, if I were like a premier uh nba prospect
1: first of all you meant to say allegedly second alleged. of all, andrew, all of
0: this is alleged it's august
1: andrew sharp reporting the internal dynamics of the recruiting battle look at you i love it
0: <laughs> well no look if you follow this stuff you're like oh so where is he gonna go and then at every april some some kid ends up at kansas um but, well, uh, Wiggins
1: had the worst list. It was like Florida State versus Kansas. Like, come on, bro. He, well, bro, he
0: was he was considering Wichita State, too. You know, Koch brothers, you. Uh, because I think his brother was playing there. And so Kansas was definitely preferable to Wichita State. Um, but moving on, sticking with the Andrew Wiggins class of players... Faith says, should we continue to invest in players like Carl Anthony Towns, D'Angelo Russell, Jaleel Okafor, Miles Turner, Emmanuel Moudier, and Kristaps Porzingis? Kristaps is on that list because, as Ben always says, availability is the best ability. But in general, what is the proper time period to expect a player to at least start showing signs of greatness? Do you have any thoughts there, Ben?
1: Well, this group of players, no disrespect, Faith, I mean, we're kind of all over the map here. I mean, a guy like Towns is already an all-star averaging twenty ten. You know, a guy like Okafor is lucky to be in the NBA, right? So, um, and Moutier, I mean, same deal. I I pretty much have given up on him. I think the best way to put it is this. When they come in as rookies, if they're getting real playing time, Uh, are they able to show what they do well, right? Like whatever their calling card was coming into the NBA, like were you a low post scorer or were you a one-on-one playmaker or were you a high volume shot blocker? Like whatever it is that you do well, there should be evidence of that skill early on, right? Because what you're going to do when you improve from like age 20 to 25 is you're going to start to fill in the holes of your game. You're going to have a more balanced game but, you know, basically most rookies who wind up being really good are able to show their elite skills immediately. And that's one of the reasons why I was out pretty early on Russell. You know, obviously it was a tough fit for him and Kobe Bryant in L.A. But when you said, OK, you have the ball in your hands, like go get us a good shot or go make a good decision or go play make off the dribble he just was not able to do it as a rookie. And then you see his defensive you know, ability and it's just atrocious. I mean, he's just getting absolutely worked possession after possession. And you start to worry like, where do you focus his development work on? Like everything needs a ton of work. And you could say pretty much the same thing with Jaleel Okafor. I mean, very early on in Philly, there was obvious red flags. I think, you know, real plus minus has its uh benefits and its drawbacks but i do think one drawback is like if you look at a guy through his first 2 years he should show obvious progress when it comes to real plus minus lots of guys who are young will struggle by Real Plus minus cuz they get picked on defensively uh and so you can kind of like you know poke your holes you know through their offensive production to find out how good are these guys actually in year 1 but yeah. they should make a, a step forward in year 2 if you've got guys who are like bottom 50 in the NBA through the first two years in Real Plus minus and they're not making that progress you know I'm pretty much at the point now where I'm ready to give up on those types of players
0: okay Um, Well, I will take it in a slightly different direction, which is to say, Faith, I don't know how closely you follow the NBA draft, but for me, my answer to this is it depends entirely on whether I like them coming into the draft. And I did not like Jaleel Okafor. I did not like Emmanuel Moutier. And so like within a month, I was ready to declare them complete busts. And D'Angelo Russell... After all these years, I'm still not quite ready, okay? it's We'll see what happens this year in Brooklyn, and I am willing to give him another, let's say, two years before I declare him a bust or even a disappointment. Um, but in general, I agree with you. I, I don't really put a ton of stock in Real Plus Minus because they're just skewed results. At like Every single year, you'll see these weird outliers, um, but... I, I I hear most of what you're saying, and I agree with it. That that year two improvement is what you're looking for.
1: Yeah, I just think it's one of the best measures for year two because a lot of times, if you're a young player, you can put up box score stats as a rookie, right? They just like yeah. throw you out there to the Okafor wolves. Did. Your team's getting killed, and but you're getting points and rebounds, so everything like looks okay on the surface, right? But. If you're and in year two, maybe the team's a little bit better, so your stats are similar than they were to your rookie year, uh, but you're winning a little bit more as a team. Okay, so then what exactly was your role in that? And I think in general, you know, Real Plus Minus is really able to, you know, point out who's responsible for those victories. I hear what you're saying about outliers. I mean, most of the time, though, like the guys who are really, really bad by Real Plus Minus um uh, are just not helpful they're bad players I mean it's very rare for someone to just rank like atrocious like way down like bottom hundred in real plus minus and actually be a good player it's just kind of hard to fake uh, on that level yeah um well and you know vice versa too like it, there aren't very many players who play lots of minutes who are really really highly ranked by real plus minus now there are occasional exceptions but um you know it, it's It's better than most other advanced stats in terms of determining who are the very most valuable and who are the least valuable guys. That's that's sort of what I'm saying.
0: Yeah, and Moutier was the classic example of that, where he did put up decent kind of counting stats, but if you watch the Nuggets, they were better with him off the floor, and so... Every now and then, you'd be in arguments with people, and you would actually have to lean on some of those advanced stats to be like, "No, Emmanuel Mudiay is not good," and they the Nuggets need to like kick this addiction to trying to make him work year after year, and they finally did, but they waited until they passed on Donovan Mitchell. It's a tragic story, um, but hey,
1: one other one other th- a tip for Faith though, what if the team that drafts a guy gives up on him? it's probably time for you to give up on him as well. Right. <laughs> so like nobody has more invested in Jaleel Okafor's success than the organization that drafted him. Same thing for Moutier. Right. So if they've reached their wits end and they've said, look, let's just punt this guy and move forward. Or like Orlando with, with Alfred Payton. How many years did they try to make it work with Alfred Payton year after year after year, just hoping that finally it would turn the corner. Right. When they finally pull the plug on those guys, that is the warning sign for you to to just get off, uh, you know, any optimistic or sort of like best case scenario hopes for those players uh, and start to like, you know, really, uh, you know, dramatically drop those expectations to, you know, maybe they can become a contributor at some point. Like there's this very popular idea of like the second draft where certain franchises will sort of go bargain, you know, basement hunting on trading for guys like Moutier uh, and hoping that a change of scenery will sort of bring something new out of them. That doesn't really happen that often. You know, just changing your jersey usually doesn't change the type of player who you really are when you're that young. Uh, and so from that standpoint, like, you know, if you're trading for Moutier, now you're hoping, hey, can this guy be, you know, a so-so backup for us? You're not thinking, can he be a franchise guard, which is what Denver was hoping for.
0: Yeah. Yeah, we could we could do kind of a meaner segment on this podcast at some point if we wanted to look uh, look across the league at like the various guys that teams should give up on or or are about to give up on like the the Henry Ellenson, Dragon Bender, DJ Wilson category of guys, but uh yeah, I shouldn't have mentioned that cuz it's mean. Uh but it's definitely like That's that's a thing, is you can tell when teams kind of shift and realize, okay, so we should not be factoring this player into our future.
1: Yeah, for sure. The smart teams can find a way to like do those dumps within bigger deals. So it's not completely obvious. Like the Lakers actually really savvily dumped D'Angelo Russell. I mean, it's like uh, all the talk was, uh, you know, about the the, credit for that,
0: man. I mean, that was one where they were kind of getting killed at the time, but it ended up being a really smart move for them. And, uh, and something that, but what,
1: what I'm saying is that, right. Nobody talked about, Hey, that, Russell was a bust, right? Like, if Russell had panned out, they never would have traded him. Like, if Russell was the guy he was supposed to be, they would have kept him and found some other way to make that deal happen, right? Well, But they were able to kind of, like...
0: Watching that, like, and again, I still kind of believe in D'Angelo Russell and want him to work, but the the red flag with the D'Angelo situation... Was that he did was was unable to click with two completely different coaching staffs, and that's not a good sign. And I think that's pro- that probably played a role in him being sent elsewhere. It's so like two like two opposite ends of the NBA coaching spectrum were like we have no idea how to connect with this kid, and that was an issue for them.
1: Yep, and that's that goes right in line with what I'm saying. Is if they're willing to pull the trigger and give up. You should give up, too. But, you know, you're still hanging tough. Maybe he'll bring the Brooklyn Nets back to glory. Uh, maybe he'll actually be better uh, than Spencer Dinwiddie this year. I guess that remains to be seen.
0: <laughs> Look, man, it's the end of summer. We're rooting for everybody. Henry Ellenson, Dragon Bender, D'Angelo Russell. Um, everybody's going to be great. But moving on, Charles says, Andrew, ever since you mentioned the My Favorite Murder podcast, my wife has become a murderino. Uh, This leads me to the question, who do you think will be in Golden State's killer death lineup this year? Um, And that's a play on the Golden State killer, I believe. And yes, the My Favorite Murder podcast continues to dominate my household. Those two women, Georgia uh, Hardstark and Karen Kilgariff, are like unofficial members of my family at this point. So I appreciate the shout out. Um, My wife will appreciate the shout out. As far as the Warriors' death lineup, we'll keep it real real quick on this one. We've talked enough about the Warriors throughout the summer. I do think that, that Boogie is going to replace Iguodala in the death lineup. Do you agree?
1: No, I do not. Also, I tried I to listen to that podcast— and they spent the first five minutes selling a book that's coming out in May, so I was just out. Like I was, I was dead. but um, not to. I guess I just criticized your new family member. No, I mean I don't uh, personally
0: listen to the podcast, honestly. But I just hear them in the background, and my my wife loves them, so I love that podcast uh, vicariously, I guess. But to me. I'm not really looking to like unwind by listening to two people talk about grisly murders every week, but some people are into that. It's not my thing.
1: Yeah. Well, on the contrary, I was, I was like, <laughs> let me get the knives. Let me get the guns, you know, whatever it might be. But and instead I'm here, you were power in a World book
0: or two, like five days ago. So of course it's up your alley.
1: Okay. So, uh, I think they will stick with Iguadala. Uh, for the most important moments of the playoffs. uh, I can definitely get the idea, you know, during the regular season, if Cousins is healthy, I think you want to boost him up as much as possible in terms of his confidence, his fit, his comfort, because there are going to be situations in the playoffs where you really are going to need him and, and want a lot from him. And you have to keep him engaged. You can't make him feel like he's the new guy or he's the odd man out or anything like that, right? Like you need to pull the best out of Boogie. But I still think, their most devastating lineup, you know, the lineup that nobody's solved is the core four uh, plus whatever the best perimeter player you've got to to throw with them. And I believe that will be Iguodala. I also think, you know, in certain matchups, like he's still an elite defensive option to throw on LeBron. Now he's not for a month straight, right? I mean, I did an Uh interview with Iguodala last week. Andrew, he talked an awful lot about golf. I mean, he really, (laughs) really, really loves golf. And that's usually a red flag, right? Uh, You know, at that point of their life. But he can still get it done defensively in the biggest matchups. If you need him against Houston, uh, I think he's going to be able to give you quality minutes. You know, ditto for whether it's the Lakers and then whoever they face, um, I think from the Eastern Conference is going to be going to a lot of versatile lineups as well, uh, whether it's Toronto or Boston. So to me... Their best five will still involve Iguodala, not Cousins, but I do expect Cousins to get lots of late game opportunities to kind of show how he fits.
0: Yeah, um, I mean that that is certainly the most conventional way to project things. Uh, I just looking at at Golden State next year. I, I and I talked about this a little bit on the last podcast where I said boogie is going to sort of revitalize them in some ways um in part and i don't necessarily mean from a talent perspective but i think the challenge of integrating boogie into things for golden state is going to help keep the season interesting for them and uh and it's going to be sort of a, a different element that uh that allows the rest of that team to to stay engaged and um not that that's a reason to make that like your closing lineup in the playoffs um but if boogie is 80% of what he was by the time the playoffs arrive i think you're underrating how dominant he'll be against like a small ball rockets look or a, or a celtics look like Boogie down low can beat the crap out of someone like Al Horford. He just can't. Like he's not great in a lot of different ways, but offensively in the low post, like I don't know what you do. And if if he's if you're switching onto Boogie, like he's gonna punish those guys. And um, and so I think the combination of of basically trying to kind of reinvent things to to keep it interesting for the rest of the team, and also Boogie's value in a switching situation is going to make him more of a viable option. And I also just kind of feel like Iggy is getting older and, uh, and that's going to matter at some point. And we thought it was going to matter this last year. We thought it was going to matter two years ago. At some point, the age factor is going to be real with him. So I think it'll be boogie and maybe that's partially, partially wishful thinking just because I think that would be more fun to watch too.
1: I mean, I kind of hear what you're saying, but remember if he's in the paint, that's an area that Katie no longer can be. That's area that's harder for Steph to get to. And usually, you are going to try to construct your best lineups around your best players and, and making them in, in you know the ideal situation to do everything they're trying to do on the basketball court, especially late in games. And I think you don't want to play boogie to me late in games if you are going to turn him into like a corner three shooter, right? Like you are going to want yeah. to work in what he can do. And so I think there's opportunities to really punish like second unit centers with Boogie where you stagger his minutes. So now it's like he gets more touches. He gets to eat more. He draws more fouls against, uh, you know, the other team's, you know, second unit bigs. And then late in the game, you kind of come back with your maximum spread look and guys like Steph and Katie can really go to work on islands and, and punish guys one-on-one. I mean, to me, that's how I would do it if I was Golden State, but uh, it remains to be seen. Can I give you a stat you're going to love?
0: Hit me.
1: During the Steve Kerr era, the last four seasons, do you know Golden State's record when Steph Curry's on the court? No. It's 244 wins against 45 losses for an (laughs) 84.4 winning percentage. And as a quick follow-up to last week where uh, we were discussing why we would go Golden State over, I mentioned, hey, look, like, like you're saying, Cousins shakes up their chemistry and for sure, like, you know, kind of jolts everybody back to reality. And I sort of made the point like, well, Steph is really a night to night guy too, right? Like he gives you a level of energy and and, uh, consistency uh, to go along with what he's actually doing on the court in terms of his shooting and his running of the offense and everything else like that. Right. Yeah. So that was the first stretch, you know, during the last four years that Curry actually missed significant time was last year, but he's won at basically a 69 win pace for four straight years when he's been on the court. So to me, it's like even if Steph has like, you know, 70 games played, I still see them going over that 62.5 sort of with or without cousins. It's like um you know the the combination of him and Duran is so good. That that core four is so proven. And then Steph is such an incredible individual player Uh, You know, to me, uh, I feel like Vegas is selling them a little bit short.
0: Yeah, you were right when you mentioned Steph's health as being the most important factor with their over-under. Because, like, again, the boogie stuff is all real and I think is actually going to matter for them, um, both on the court and emotionally. But when Steph is out there, like, you're not... there. There's no way. If he plays 70 games, they're not winning less than 60. Like, that's just the way it goes. Um, And he he's just ridiculous man like the the, the thing that's with crazy Steph,
1: right we're gonna isn't that a crazy number yeah and not only that but like they're the number one offense basically for four straight years right so and come on man we
0: we appreciate Steph now I appreciate him more than a lot of people but you do too and like but I do think we're gonna get 10 or 15 years down the road or even longer than that and look back at the ridiculous accomplishments from him and just be flabbergasted that this dude was real. And he's, again, in that category of guys who just never compare a young player to Steph because this is one of the craziest things the NBA has ever seen.
1: Yeah, I think message to the 22, 23, and 24-year-old people you were harping on earlier uh, who were not respecting uh, Carmelo Anthony— You guys, when you grow up, you're going to be like the old guy, like I am towards Duncan. (laughs) That's how you're going to talk about Steph Curry. For whatever that next generation, you guys are going to be like, sure, LeBron James Jr. can dunk and do 360s from the free throw line. But Steph Curry went 244 and 45 over a four-year stretch. It won three titles. I mean, he was the real guy. He was the emotional leader. Get ready for those conversations because that's what your future is going and to be about. And you know about.
0: what? We're not there yet for a variety of reasons because the Warriors story has gotten so strange and warped by like online arguments, but uh, we should be there now. I mean, Steph is absolutely ridiculous. But moving on now, podium, three more questions. We should probably try to keep this quick. We're running long again. Every time we record these podcasts, my goal is is to keep it to like a tight 60 minutes. And for all kinds of reasons, we end up getting closer to an hour and a half. So I apologize. Um.
1: Andrew, there's no reason to apologize. You've done great. I I called you out. I wanted great takes and revelations (sighs) from you this week. And you brought the heat. I really appreciate it. And remember, guys, if you want to join in on the questions, openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. You can hop into this podium section that we're about to uh, kick off right it's, now
0: it's the worst and i'm i'm really only apologizing to myself because i'm mad at myself i'm i don't care about anyone uh but anyways <laughs> uh joseph says hi guys as a massive history fan i was thrilled at the start of last week's podcast and boy did it get me thinking this take is problematic because i agree with you that no, it's not okay to power rank the participants of global conflicts, and it's probably even (laughs) worse to quibble with abortive power rankings of participants in global conflicts. Yet, I am about to quibble. Ben stated that the USSR would rank higher than the UK based on availability being the greatest ability. But listen, the UK in World War II was nothing if not available. They were active in multiple theaters and often effective even if in underappreciated areas. I'm talking Southeast Asia, Northern Northern Africa, Western and Northern Europe on land, and then in the air and at sea in the North Atlantic over Germany itself and in the Mediterranean. I'm talking the Siege of Malta. I'm talking the Burma campaigns, El (laughs) Alamein, the Dam Busters, amongst many others. British participation was often as much about trying to make the conflict as widespread as possible to take some of the pressure off the Allies and forcing the Axis to be more available than they could afford to be. The UK was the ultimate floor spacer, if you will. And yes, I am a terrible person. I'm sorry. And then he also he continues on and says, I also wanted to give a shout out to Norway for resisting German occupation and blowing up their own national records to make it impossible to distinguish Jewish citizens and blowing up the German facilities for making nuclear weapons. And one final shout out to Finland for fighting off a Soviet invasion in 1940. These nations maybe won't make a lot of people's top tens, but they deserve some props. Um, so that was one of many uh, World War II emails we got. I said we were going to get back into it, but Ben, I will cede the floor to you for a minute.
1: Well, look, I mean, you didn't think we were going to get much of a response. You were all worried we were going to get fired. <laughs> Instead, we got a solid 200-something emails about World War II. I was blown away. I love the global nature of the Open Floor Globe. Yes, it's self-explanatory. It's in the name, but... I heard from Canadians who thought we underrated the Canadians. I heard from Australians who thought we underrated the Australians. I definitely heard from the Brits like Joseph. I heard just from all over the globe people had takes on this. Um, (laughs) I think the the main point of the discussion did fly over some people's heads, right? Because the idea was about trying to restore humanity into our discourse and not doing the power rankings. And so I do want to leave on that note, Andrew. I don't think we should dive back into this conversation, Um, but rest assured, everyone who sent me an email about World War II or a message on Instagram about World War II, I thought deeply about it. I truly appreciated it, and I was glad that we could all connect on Uh, you know, a level of conversation that wasn't just about basketball.
0: Yeah, well, and I should clarify that I was laughing through some of what you were talking about last week, and I wasn't laughing at the war itself. I was more laughing at how much of a weirdo you are, Um, (laughs) and there was some uneasiness on my side of the microphone that people sensed, and that's because when Ben comes up with these introductions... He refuses to tell me anything about them and just says, bookend the first 10 or 15 minutes for a take I have. And so I really had no idea where we were going. And, um, yeah, I feel like it's a dicey territory to start making NBA comparisons to – War participants, but I did love the intro in general because I, I I do think well, let, we're like probably one of the best NBA podcasts, if not the best. But sometimes oh. you gotta want it with us, you know. We have some solid <laughs> basketball discussion, but we make people work for it. So I enjoyed it.
1: I'm gonna make an off the wall analogy here, but I want to stand up for you here because it's a lot harder, first of all, to host, but it's also a lot harder to, to deal with a live wire like me where you don't know where I'm going. <laughs> and it could be absolutely anywhere. So guys, imagine that Sharp and I are, you know, tag team tandem figure skaters, right? Okay. So you've watched the Olympics when they have the pairs figure skating, like they win gold medal by being completely in sync every skate. You know, the blades are, you know, simultaneous. When they do the throws, uh, you know, the girls spin like, you know, four rotations and then she'll be caught absolutely perfectly. Now imagine I'm the girl figure skater and I just (laughs) didn't tell Andrew what I was going to do, right? So his job is to sort of follow me around the ice, make sure it looks good, but then also make sure I don't fall completely on my face and be ready to catch me at a moment's notice when the stakes are absolute highest. And by the way, do it in a timely manner, sort of like on rhythm with the music That is the analogy that we're operating with. And yes, you're probably saying, you know what, Ben, maybe you should just clue Andrew in and tell him (laughs) what you're going to do. The The whole thing might work a little (laughs) bit better. Nope. We don't script things here. We keep it real. And, uh, I appreciate uh, your steady hand, uh, as I do my triple axles. There we go.
0: Triple axle into world war two and top 100. Um, Moving on, though, uh, to Portland, home of Golliver, Dan says, Earlier this year, I took a trip from Boston to Portland to catch a couple Blazers games and check out the city. At one of the games, I noticed that Dennis Scott was there, and I I assumed it was a players-only broadcast. Later that night, after a few drinks, I randomly walked past him on the street and said, Hey, Dennis Scott, and he gave me a head nod and a what's up or something as we passed. And then I went a step further and yelled, Players only, man! Not players only, baby. Players only, man. Somewhere in my head, I made the snap decision that it would be presumptuous of me to say baby, so I shifted to man, and it was as (coughs) cringeworthy (coughs) as it sounds. He mercifully didn't turn around and graciously gave me a fist in the air as he kept walking away. Do you guys have any good... Awkward interactions with sports personalities over the years. What do you What do you have, Ben?
1: Uh, I've got a couple different ones, different flavors. None of these are too long. I'll go with the simplest one first. One time, I was doing the classic, you know, walking while texting or wa- walking while tweeting and, and not paying attention, and I turned the corner. Uh, at the, the the Moda Center or the Rose Garden and tried to go through a door but standing in the doorway filling the entire doorway was Shaquille O'Neal this was probably like almost 10 years ago when he was still a player and I, w- I was walking pretty fast because you know I'm frantic and unnecessarily like anxious all the time so I'm like walking texting like and I came I would say about three inches from going chest to chest. I mean, Shaq was ready to take the charge on me and I was going to lose that physical battle. There is no question. And that probably would have been like a million views on YouTube had I hit him and then immediately hit the deck. Uh, He looked at me like I was an absolute idiot, which, you know, considering the circumstances was totally fair. Yep. Uh, So that would be number one. Number two, this is more of like an awkward media interaction, but Damian Lillard got into this uh, scenario where, like, someone had accused him of, like, being, I guess, in like a late-night altercation in Portland, and maybe there was going to be a lawsuit. And the guy went to like a local TV station to kind of like shame Damian Lillard, and he just like never addressed it in the media. So, like, two months later, after he hadn't like you know really done any interviews, we were out of the practice facility, and there was a whole scrum. And I was like, all right, well, we better just like ask Damien for his side of this because no one ever did. And he got very uncomfortable, didn't want to talk about it. Like basically just like tried to hit the eject button two or three times. And then he just decided, okay, boom, like scrums over. So I kind of ruined it for everyone. And the girl who like worked for the team (laughs) website at the time uh, was like, so like Damien walks away and the girl who, uh, who works for the team website was like, okay, that was great. Like saying this very loud to our camera guy, let's just cut <laughs> let's out that right. last part and pretend that didn't happen. Like <laughs> as I'm standing like two feet away, it's like, what a- apologies to me for trying to get the news. My yeah. bad, uh, my last one. And I think it's honestly my best one. So, uh, it's after a blazers nuggets game. And this is sort of like the, you know, the late 2000s. So, you know, it's like the J.R. Smith, Kenyon Martin, like that, you know, era of the Nuggets where uh you know George Carl had to write a book about basically how much he hated all the players on that team. Yep. Uh, and it was post-game and I you know I'm kinda of trying to do double duty. I had finished with the Blazers locker room. So I go back over to the Nuggets locker room thinking like, oh, maybe I can like hop into a scrum or like get a couple quotes, whatever. I take, like, one step into the uh, Nuggets locker room. Kenya Martin looks up. He goes, hey, Luke. And he's, like, referring to Luke Babbitt, like, the fact that I look like Luke Babbitt. He's like, hey, Luke, you're lost, buddy. You're in the wrong effing locker room. This is the visitor's locker room, bro. And the entire, like, Nuggets team just starts laughing at me because, you know, (laughs) I look like Luke Babbitt. And... (laughs) I smartly just decided to just do a 180 and just, you know, just take my loss and leave. So that was that.
0: Yeah. Well, I I could see how you might pass for an NBA player. You're randomly 6'5". You've got the shaved head. I could see people making that mistake.
1: Well, I, for years, people said that in in Portland. And actually, I personally believe I have no... You know, reason to believe this other than my own thought. I think Luke Babbitt grew his hair out because he was tired (laughs) of hearing that (laughs) that I look like me. And there was actually another situation where uh, it was like his second year. He had kind of been struggling. And for whatever reason, like the Colombian, uh, the Vancouver Colombian local newspaper there, decided to do like a big profile on Luke Babbitt. He really wasn't playing that much. But then the entire angle of the story became the fact that I had basically nicknamed him the Chalupa guy because one time he had, you know, hit a three pointer to give the Blazers a hundred points, and so all the fans got free chalupas because of that. I had asked him about it after a game, and he had said, "Well, you know, it just feels really good to give the fans Taco Bell." That quote had gone viral, and so from then on, all the fans basically were like, you know, when they saw him in the street or whatever, always like, "Thanks for the chalupas, chalupa guy." And so <laughs> that's tough. <laughs> So his, basically that was like his whole reputation in Portland. And I think he was just trying to sort of work through some things, yeah, get some distance start. from the Chalupa, uh, you know, identity that he had <laughs> developed and, uh, you know, good for him. You know, he's still, he's still getting paychecks. You know, it, his career didn't quite go the way I think he maybe wanted it to. Uh, but nevertheless, at least he's not getting compared to me anymore.
0: Yeah. Well, Chalupa guy and, uh Bizarro Ben Galver. Neither neither of those brands are, are what you're looking for when you're entering the NBA. But he has Luke Babbitt has hung on for a while there. Um, the uh, I have a couple answers. At number one, I've told this story in the past, but similar to your locker room mishaps, I was with I was maybe 24 years old and i was in the wizard i was in the visitors locker room at verizon center interviewing the miami heat this was when lebron was in miami and i had to do a story on lebron but lebron like wasn't talking yet and so i was sitting next to udonis haslam and trying to ask him about lebron but lebron was standing right there And um, this was one of the first or second times I'd ever been in a locker room before. And so I was very nervous and kind of like stammering out questions to Udonis about LeBron with LeBron like literally like 18 inches away. And uh, LeBron (laughs) just starts kind of like snickering and basically just laughing at me the entire time and me feeling more and more awkward as we went. And uh, so it was just a disaster all around um, because I could tell that LeBron was just like, who the hell, who let this fucking college kid into the locker room? And uh Hey
1: Udonis, is LeBron the best player you've <laughs> exactly, ever played with? Exactly. Can you talk about how good LeBron is on offense? It office? was
0: terrible. I'm sure I threw in a talk about into that mix. Um and then another interaction I had was with Jay-Z. And this one was almost a shot for shot recreation of uh the scenario that Dan described with Dennis Scott because I was at the All-Star game in Dallas, and um, this is, again, when I was like 24, 25 years old, and uh, the, the it was All-Star Saturday night, and I was looking for a bathroom and got lost and wound up in some sort of super VIP area of the Mavericks Stadium, and, uh, and so I went back and it was an empty restaurant. And I was like, all right, this looks great. I'm sure they have a bathroom. And I went back and found the bathroom. And as I turned the corner, there's just a hallway with me and Jay-Z. And obviously, I completely freeze. And I'm just like, holy shit. Because like Jay-Z is my favorite rapper of all time. I mean, he's incredible. And uh, and I had no idea what to say. Walk past him without saying anything. And then as I'm entering the bathroom, and he's probably like, eight feet away now uh, behind me, I yell, Hove! And uh, hope for some oh, sort of... No. It, was, it was awful. It was really terrible. God, and Jay-Z, to his credit, did not turn around or acknowledge me whatsoever, which is probably what I deserved at that point. Um, but uh, that was great. So I it, I, could,
1: I... it could have been worse, Andrew. You could have said H to the Izzo. I mean, you could have gone like, Jigaman! <laughs> like this <laughs> <totally>. <laughs>
0: totally i was so starstruck though that was pretty cool um but i identify with your cringe feeling dan um and then another one i i was recently in the same restaurant as bob myers who i don't think necessarily qualifies as as a celebrity but maybe like a basketball internet celebrity but i do not know bob myers so i didn't really like go over and say hi to him as like a nba person and um but I don't know. I think I could have. It, it would have been fun to go up and engage in a little friendly debate about Kevin Durant. But maybe he was with his wife, yes. so I didn't. I decided not to subject him to that.
1: Hey Bob, uh, you've done a great job building one of the most dominant dynasties <laughs> in NBA history. I've actually spent the last two and a half years trying to ruin it on the internet. I, I haven't made any progress, but I've certainly tried <laughs> I'm to on break it. <laughs> up. <laughs> Great, you know, relationship drama between these superstars where it doesn't exist. How are you
0: doing? What, what did you get? Yeah. Did you get a steak, or what are you eating there? <laughs> uh, I'll save that one. Uh, but anyways, we've gone long here. Moving on. Reeves says, the series that skewed those Tim Duncan and Shaq playoff stats was Sun Spurs in 2008. I heard those numbers from Golliver and thought the same as you without that series. When Shaq was like 37 years old, Shaq leads 14 11. And though I didn't calculate it, I'm sure the head to head stats would look very different. And thank you Reeves. This is where we're going to end for anyone who missed it last week. Ben claimed that Shaq and Tim Duncan were dead even in head-to-head playoff matchups and Duncan's numbers were better across the board, points, rebounds, and assists, but this is why you can't trust stats people like Ben Golliver, because you can massage numbers to make them tell you whatever you want to hear and... All I'll say is that I deal in the truth. I watch the games and I come on this podcast and I tell the truth. I can't say the same for you, but you know, I'll let you make your case at the end here and then we'll wrap it.
1: So I listened back to that segment just to see if you had said what I actually thought you said. And it instantly reminded me of Karl Rove just being in denial about the Ohio voting results <laughs> during that presidential election where you're just like, no, these numbers are wrong. No, no, no. You uh, can't. Uh, no, uh, no. Oh, these numbers. You, ah, I'm these not going right. to You
0: man. cannot count the Suns version of Shaq. Okay? I'm talking... Lakers Shaq and Heat Shaq and Magic Shaq. Sun Shaq was a different animal entirely, and this is what I'm talking about. Okay. Duncan okay, not Andrew. getting fat and lazy at the end of his career for some reason has vaulted him ahead of better players.
1: Well, good news, Andrew, because you know even though you and Reeve want to unskew the polls here <laughs> by taking out a series that did happen... <laughs> That's a deep cut internet reference for people who may or may not remember it. I have deleted that series out of the numbers, okay? Okay, thank you. And I'm going to give you pl- playoff numbers for Duncan and Shaq, all right? Are you ready? Duncan, 26, 13, four assists, two blocks. Shaq, 24 points, 14 rebounds, two assists, two blocks. So Shaq's got them by one extra rebound. Duncan scored more points. Had more assists, similar number of blocks. Andrew, I just don't know what to tell you. And the most (laughs) remarkable thing, the most remarkable thing was all these wins that Tim Duncan was doing at a young age over Shaq. I mean, you would have thought because Shaq was older in general that he really would have dominated Duncan Spurs during his prime. That's not how it went down, Andrew. And I know sometimes it's hard because guys like Shaq, they're just so... He's just a big teddy bear. You want to watch him in movies. You want to drink the same soda he does. You just want every aspect of the shack experience to dominate your life. Well, Tim Duncan's giving you a constant cold shoulder. Uh, He's not engaging in any way. He's wearing goofy clothes that you would never ever wear. But guess what, Andrew? Five rings beats four every time.
0: Oh, man. Yeah. We'll keep this going. We'll argue about this on every single podcast going forward because I'm definitely correct. Uh, but sure, throw out whatever numbers you need to. And by the way, I'm convinced now that the, the numbers that you're throwing out there include some other series that I'm not accounting for. Um, but.
1: (laughs) Okay, Carl. (laughs) Hey, look, hey, if we don't count Ohio and Florida, I'm sure the Republican won that uh, presidential nomination too. Oh
0: God. Uh, well, I, I it's. The podcast can get no lower for me than you comparing me to Carl Rove. So that's probably a sign that it's time to wrap up. Uh, we will be back next week. Uh, Shaq is still better. Peak Shaq is still better than Tim Duncan. And uh, on that note, Ben, I will talk to you soon.
1: Sounds good, Andrew. Don't forget, Open Floor Globe members. We're still cranking it out this summer. So help us out. Go to Apple Podcasts and give us that five star review. Search our page. It's Open Floor, two words. Scroll down. It says rate and review tap five stars it's just that easy and also email us openfloormail at gmail.com openfloormail at gmail.com keep all those great emails coming and we'd love to hear their embarrassing stories too i mean i think uh you know our buddy dan was on to something this is a good off-season topic we shared ours now let's hear yours andrew until next week i will talk to you
0: another great edition of open floor is in the books Did you know Locked On has a daily podcast for all 30 NBA teams? If you're a Lakers fan, search Locked On Lakers. A Celtics fan, search Locked On Celtics. Warriors fans, search Locked On Warriors. Yes, all 30 NBA teams have a daily bite-sized podcast on the Locked On Podcast Network. Search on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts for Locked On, your favorite team. Or tell your smart speaker to play podcasts, Locked On, your favorite team.